Okay, we're going to climb in, but I want to begin with prayer tonight. I need to catch some, catch y'all up on something that's going on in Kazakhstan. There are, um, you know, we've got Jake and Stephanie over there in Astana. That's the capital. I feel like I may be too loud. Maybe if somebody knows what they're doing back there. Is that, it's not too loud? Okay. Okay. All right. Maybe because I'm in front of myself. Um, they had a, apparently there's a new person in charge of the, this, I can share this, can I? Spoken? Yeah, not forwarding email sort of thing, but spoken, I can. There's a, uh, somebody that, a new person in charge of what's called the KNB, which is the secret police in um, Kazakhstan. And they apparently are pretty militant about religious stuff, or maybe it's the new religious, religion ambassador or somebody that is um, pretty militant. And apparently they just, they had a raid on a church in Almaty, a, a um, Presbyterian church, and very aggressive deal. They, they um, kept them all in the, in the church building there until like one o'clock in the morning. They actually detained three or four people beyond that and taken them into custody with the potential of treason charges and took all their laptops, all their computers, all their um, documents or paraphernalia or I don't know what you'd call it. I guess their Bibles really is what we're... I'm trying to think of the words that they used in the report. But, you know, that's, uh, that's concerning. So we need to pray for... Um, pray that God will shine in that. I'm about to read something that Spurgeon wrote a long time ago in regards to kind of a follow-up from Sunday's message to where we can actually in some weird way embrace persecution because of what God does with the message during persecution. Um, so I guess the main thing for us to pray is just pray for those on the field, just to deep abiding hope, trust, confidence, boldness, you know, all the things that uh, as we're sitting here, we can pray them into a place of strength. And um, I think there's, there's, they can uh, ride the wind of our prayers and encouragement as we lift them up. So I want to lift them up first before we climb in tonight. So let's pray. Lord, first uh, tonight, we just want to lift up uh, Jake and Stephanie. We want to lift up other folks that are on the field in Kazakhstan. Lord, I pray that right now, while they are considering possibly what's in store for uh, the faith in that country, Lord, that they will just um, plant their feet and trust and know that you are on your throne, that you've never been caught off guard, and you're not surprised by anything. And that if this is happening, it's happening by permission only. And um, pray for just a deep uh, trust, a boldness with the gospel. Uh, pray for believers that are in country that are Kazakh believers or Russian believers. Uh, for just a uh, confidence in your design and your plan and your will. I pray that in this time where they may face uh, some persecution for their faith, that they will shine brightly and... Um, confess loudly and boldly and clearly and that you will be glorified through that. Uh, we trust you, Lord, and um, we just place that whole situation in your hands. Lord, I pray for the pastor and his sister and other people that may have been detained um, who may face charges and possible imprisonment. Lord, I pray even for them that they will be a great witness to their captors and their um, Sailmates or whoever they may be sharing this, uh, sharing space with in the next few days or months or years. Um, just look for an opportunity for you to shine. Just pray that they will be, be encouraged. Lord, in these next few minutes, I pray for this people that we will um, bring glory to you in the way that we engage uh, the fall, in the way that we understand how sin entered into the world. We can understand how temptation and sin works. Um, that we can see your plan even from the very beginning, your redemptive pattern that shows up even in the early, early pictures of the of our book and the early pictures of the the um, account of history. Um, Lord, I pray that we'll see a bigger you and a bigger plan, and a uh, have a deeper, greater trust that you are in control and that you have a. Um, a wonderful gospel that's unfolding and that we're embedded in, in that process. Um, I pray that it'll just make for uh, 
richer worship, um, more robust um, thankfulness, gratitude, wonder, surprise. It's all the things that um, should characterize the people of God. Humility. And um, I pray that that will come from these sort of revelations that we engage tonight. We love you, Lord. We thank you for Christ. And he is so wonderful. His work is so sufficient and so complete. His cross was so powerful and so mighty and so surgical. And um, you were surgical in loving the world in and through his work. And uh, we celebrate that tonight. We appreciate that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to share something with you. Um, let me encourage you, too. Uh, you know, as of about a month ago, we started producing these shepherd's guides on uh, Sunday mornings as an instrument that shepherds can use at home. And I want to encourage you to uh, see the elders, me or the other elders, that's good, as approachable if you have questions. You know, if, if there's a question there, you're like, I'm not sure what he's getting at. Like somebody asked me yesterday, what did you mean about who are the agents in this chapter? Who are the moving agents? And if you've looked at the Shepherd's Guide this week, you know what I'm referring to. Uh, if you have questions like that, don't hesitate to send me an email or a phone call or whatever because that's worthwhile. I mean, that, that's not a, an interruption for me because I think that taking that message into the home and escorting it into the lives of your family members through engaging it is um, probably the most valuable thing that you can do all week. So um, please see me as uh, interruptible, <laughs> a new word, and when it comes to stuff like that. So email's good because I can, I can send off a quick response too. Um, quick, Scott was reading, reading an old Spurgeon sermon today, and he shared this with me as kind of a follow-up from Sunday. He thought it was... Uh, Pretty powerful, and as, as he read it to me, I thought I needed to share this tonight. And then uh, we'll follow up after this reading with any questions that you may have from Sunday. I know that that was, may have been the first time that some of you have seen Satan in that place. And um, so I want to give us an, an opportunity to chew on that a little bit if we need to tonight. Spurgeon preached, and uh, I guess he wrote this too. What has the devil been doing these thousands of years? Has he not been the unwilling servant of God and of his church? That's kind of weird to think about Satan being the servant of God. He has always been seeking to destroy the living tree, but when he has been trying to root it up, it has only been like a gardener digging with his spade and loosening the earth to help the roots spread themselves the more. And when he's been with his axe seeking to lop the Lord's trees and to mar their beauty, what has he been, after all, but a pruning knife in the hand of God to take away the branches that do not bear any fruit and to purge those that do bear some, that they may bring forth more fruit? Once upon a time, you know, the church of Christ was like a little brook, just a tiny streamlet, and it was flowing along in a little narrow dell. Just a few saints were gathered together at Jerusalem, and the devil thought to himself, now I'll get a great stone and stop this brook from running. So he goes and gets this great stone and he dashes it down in the middle of the brook, thinking, of course, he should stop it from running any longer. But instead of doing so, he scattered the drops all over the world. <clears throat> and each drop became the mother of a fresh fountain. You know what that stone was? It was the persecution of the saints, and they were scattered by it. But then they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word, and so the church was multiplied, and the devil was defeated. Satan, listen to this, man. Spurgeon just squares off against Satan. Satan, I tell thee to thy face, thou art the greatest fool that ever breathed. And I will prove it to thee in the day when thou and I shall stand as enemies, sworn enemies, as we are to this day at the great bar of God. And so, Christian, mayest thou say unto him whenever he attacks thee, Fear him not, but resist him steadfast in the faith, and thou shalt prevail. I thought that was a good, uh, pretty good follow-up from Sunday. Anybody have any thoughts or questions in regards to uh, Sunday's message? Anything that you've been chewing on this week that caught you off guard? Have I already got all that? Man, 
That's amazing. Yeah, that's. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we're talking about kind of in the horizontal human realm. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, she's she's asking good questions. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. Anybody else have any? You think the you think um, that the devil rates his own column? He doesn't get his own column, does he? And we talked Sunday a little bit about this. Scott shared this picture he's always had of good things being in this column with God at the top of that, bad things in this column with Satan at the top of that. And really there are no columns. God's over all. God is Lord over all. And if bad things happen, they happen by allowance. Nothing happens. There's not a renegade molecule. As R.C. Sproul said, there's not a renegade molecule in the universe. Our God is not sovereign. If anything is renegade, anything, then God is not truly sovereign. He's not truly omnipotent, meaning all-powerful. So when you start thinking about those sort of things, you start piecing those kind of things together. Without that sort of equipment, when something bad happens to you, you automatically think, well, I must not be faithful. I must not be doing it right. Lord, what am I doing wrong? You may be doing everything right. You may be like Job. Job wouldn't do anything wrong. I mean, it may, it may, may be facing some consequences of sin, <laughs> for sure. But you may just be an instrument of glory. So, you know, that, that shouldn't necessarily be our response. It ought to be, Lord, show me what you're doing in this. I know you're on your throne. I know you're not distracted. I know you're not caught unawares. And I know you're not missing anything. And that's a comfort to me. There's something cool about knowing that God's on his throne. Hey. When I face this sort of tragedy or this sort of loss or this sort of issue, I can trust to know that God is on his throne. It be like facing turbulence in a plane when you know there's a good pilot in the, in the cockpit. Okay, that's comforting to me when I know I've got an accomplished pilot. If you all have any questions about that, don't be afraid to let me know. Um, one of the things I thought I would share with you too that I didn't really develop on Sunday, we're going to have kind of part two of this, this message on uh, Satan, kind of exposing Satan for where he fits in. We're going to look at what it meant that he was cast out in the work of the cross. Um, but one of the things, you know, this, I brought this question up that Evan shared with me. Why would God allow Satan to, to, to act? Why would he allow him even to influence and be? And uh, we know from Genesis already, we know that God created the serpent. We know that Satan is a creature. And, um, you know, trying to fit that whole thing together, that Zechariah passage is a good passage to go to where you see kind of all the elements. You see uh, the guilty standing there, Joshua the high priest, Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Zechariah standing there. You see Satan right next to him going, guilty, guilty, guilty. He's dirty. Look at him, God. He's not like you. You're holy. But look at him. Look at his iniquity. Look at those filthy clothes. And God says, I rebuke you, Satan. He says, I rebuke you. Don't you know that that right there, that Joshua, that Jerusalem, that Israel, that church is a brand plucked from the fire? I mean, you hear the surgical word and pluck. I'm plucking. I'm choosing that brand. I'm grabbing that brand brand and rescuing that brand from the fire. Not because of anything redeeming in that brand. In fact, that brand deserves to be consumed. And then that brand is plucked, and that brand not only is rescued from the flames, i.e. rescued from hell, but that brand is cleaned up. Let me give you a bath. Let me give you some new clothes. Let me even give you a nice new turban. I mean, we're going to, I mean, dress you up. That's the picture of Ephesians chapter 2. I shared the first part of that on Sunday. That first three verses kind of develops the, the brandness, <laughs> the fireness, where you can feel the flames and the flicker and the heat of, ooh, I'm in the fire. 
And in a lot of ways, what, gay, what, what, what Satan is doing when he's accusing me of being guilty, in some ways he's right. <laughs> I am guilty. That first three verses develops that. But in verse 4, if you want to understand why God would allow that darkness, why he would allow Satan to influence in the first place, look at, or listen to this. Just, you don't have to turn there. Just listen. Listen to this development. But God, the first three verses just basically said, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. Hopeless and helpless. Walking according to the prince of the power of the air. At work, who's at work in the sons of disobedience. It says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were wearing dirty clothes, even when we were rightfully in the fire, made us alive together with Christ. Through the work of the cross, reached out and grabbed that brand from the fire. Whoosh. Okay? He says, by grace you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. That's what I'm talking about whenever he gives them new clothes and a nice new hat. That's the, the amazing thing. First of all, it's amazing that we're saved from hell. And it's even more amazed that we're seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. A victor is seated. We would expect Christ to be seated at the right hand of the Father. Seated, as in the work is done in a place of honor. And he's going to let me sit with him? Are you crazy? I mean, that's just, that's the scandal of the gospel. But here's why. Here's why you got to allow all that darkness. So that, in verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's the motive of the gospel right there. So that his grace is on display. Look at that. Without the accusations of Satan, guilty, guilty. Without that echo in your ears, you you wouldn't appreciate what was taking place. What Joshua is seeing and hearing, Joshua the high priest, while he's being snatched from the embers or from the, the fire, and as he's hearing the echoes of guilty, 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 and he's seeing that long arm reach out and grab him, grace is illuminated in that. God's grace is on display. So you wouldn't know that you needed a Savior except for this sort of scenario. So God has allowed this thing to develop, and in some ways He's orchestrated things without being the author of sin. I said it on Sunday. I don't know how He does that. He doesn't author sin. He also doesn't tempt man. We know He doesn't do that either. Say that again. Exactly. We saw that in chapter 1 of Genesis where there was darkness already and he spoke the light into darkness. It's his redemptive pattern from the very beginning. It's Egypt. He let Israel experience 400 years of slavery in Egypt to show up as the big D deliverer and rescue them. He let the world get so wicked and so dark that we would see ourselves in the, um, the ship's party on the ark with Noah as kind of a type of Christ, where we'd go, man, a remnant preserved. I mean, he lets darkness develop so that we would see, we see him as the rescuer and see him as the savior that he is in the work of Christ. And also appreciate that his work, this grace that's shown toward us, is surgical in the person and work of Christ. And you say, well, God is love. Yeah. God is grace. Yes, He is. In the person and work of Christ. His love is surgical. And His grace is surgical. Listen. So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. <laughs> he's, he's basically developed this story to where His sons will be famous. To where there will be a people that will just adore His Son. And that will just live in shock and wonder and surprise. And that's, that's the heart of worship. I mean, that's, that's where worship comes from. Like, are you kidding me? <laughs> that's an awesome gospel. That's the good news. Anybody have any thoughts or questions before we move into Genesis? It's a little tangent. It's a necessary tangent, though. We need to... Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Right. That's right. That's right. Without wrath, you've got to see His wrath. And wrath is underdeveloped in the church. We're afraid that's going to scare somebody away. Really what that does is that gives footing for glory or wonder and, and worship. I mean, we need to see ourselves sitting in a cell on death row. We need to feel the, um, and see the lights dim as people get voltage sent through their body and know that that's our due and maybe even hear some screams. Ah! I mean, for real, we need to feel the flame and flicker of hell. One of the most famous sermons ever written was written by Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And I think every Christian ought to read that thing. This guy was studied. He was an evangelist. God used him in a wonderful way in the Great Awakening to bring thousands of people to Christ. But the guy was well acquainted with what he was delivered from. I'm not sure that we can truly worship and wonder apart from being acquainted with that, that wrath and understanding what we've been delivered from and what our due is. That's what that whole He Stinketh series was on, is we stinketh. <laughs> you know, we're in league with Lazarus, and uh, I, there's riches there. There's riches there. Let's climb into Genesis. Let's find out why we stink. Genesis chapter 1, or chapter 3, verse 1. What I hope to do tonight is to get through verse 13. We'll see. We're going to focus on verse 6 on, and we'll see. So, see how far we get. We're not in a hurry. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say... You shall not eat any of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, Oh, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Did God say that? <laughs> no, no. She wasn't paying attention to Adam or Adam gave her bad gouge or I don't know what happened. But she, that, that's not what God said. She's mistaken. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. That's the first lie, at least recorded lie that we know of from Satan. You will not surely die. Here's, here's, the, um, here's how he builds on that, that uh, deception. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He presents God as kind of this killjoy. <laughs> you know, he just doesn't want what's best for you guys, you know. He's kind of a cosmic killjoy, kind of a ogre, <laughs> you know, curmudgeon. Come on now. This is really going to be cool if you guys eat of this fruit because you'll know good and evil. So, verse 6, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. That's where I want to just spend the next few minutes, verse 6. Um, we won't move this slow through the rest of Genesis. Just realize that these first three chapters especially are just worth camping and, and low-crawling. That's what we did in the Marine Corps, where you low-crawl and you see little bitty tiny things on the ground that you wouldn't see otherwise. You know, That's what we're doing. We're low-crawling through chapter 3. So let's look at verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And She also gave some to her husband who was with her, 
and he ate. What do y'all, um, what, I do, what steps do y'all identify there in that passage, the steps of sin? Just throw them out there. Saul, okay. What next? Okay, it appealed to the senses. What, what, what version do you have, Deborah? NIV. Okay, does anybody else have what, what would be what parallel to what she just said? A delight to the eyes, okay. Um, if something is a delight to the eyes, then it, it, someone is delighting in it. So that would be, although it's not presented as a verb there, she saw is clearly a verb. We will kind of interpose this second verb. She delighted. Okay. She saw. She delighted. What else? For gaining knowledge. Yeah. Wisdom. Yeah. Right. Okay. So she saw. She delighted. What does she do next? Oh, we'll get to that in a minute. She desired, okay, and she took, and she ate, okay? Now, let me ask you the question to consider. Just from that little process that we see right there, we can get acquainted with the anatomy of sin. It's a good idea to get acquainted with the anatomy of sin because if we're to be a people of God and God is holy and we are to be what? We are to therefore be holy. We are to pursue holiness as His people. So we should be acquainted with what keeps us from being holy so that we may not go down that same path. So of this journey here, she saw, she delighted, she desired, she took, she ate. How can this be interrupted? What would you say, Steve? Okay, that's my first note too. Does anybody see that? If the first one is she looked, just don't look. Can anybody think of a passage that comes to mind that would support that? Hey, that's good. Yeah, that's from Terminal on the Mount. Okay. How about an Old Testament passage? Lot. Ooh, yeah, that's, that's a bad idea. Lot, or, uh, Miss, Mrs. Lot, let's not look if he says not to look. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Make eye contact with, with her. Yeah. Let me introduce you to a passage that has ministered to me. Christy and I have been married 12 years, and um, this is one of my favorite passages. And it, it visits me regularly because I'm made of the same thing that, in, that the rest of the men in this room are made of. Okay, men are very visual, <laughs> men especially. We see and we sin. That's where sin begins. We look. But this passage in Job, appropriately. Thank you, Job, for giving me this passage. Lord, ultimately. Job chapter 31. Turn there. Men, especially, I want you to see this passage. Maybe this was what you're thinking of, Morris. Maybe not. This may be just a parallel to that or an additional passage. Job chapter 31, page 437, verse 1. Job says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Job basically said, okay, <laughs> recognizing that sin begins with the eyes, I'm going to make a deal with my eyes. Just don't even go there. You know, it's, it's like saying, okay, eyes, I'm going to make a deal with you to make eye contact with women and limit it to about that. <laughs> maybe a face, maybe a smile, but that's about all you need, Ben. Because you've got a woman that you can, you can look at all you want. That's a blessing to a, to a man, to have that. And that's all you need, is to be a one-woman man. That's, that's a lot of what it means in these, these prerequisites for deacons and elders, that they're a one-woman man, that they have eyes for that woman only. They're that sort of man. Yeah, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, um, what's the phrase? You can look, but don't buy. I mean, how many times you heard a bunch of guys, hey, yeah, man, look at her, but who, yeah, you know, you can look, just don't buy. Well, I would argue that a purchase begins with a look. I, I, I would be surprised if there's ever been a case of infidelity that didn't begin first with a look. So if you make that deal with your eyes, okay, I just won't go there. I just won't even start down that road. You're not toying with 
I mean, you're not even giving something any room to go down the rest of that process of seeing, delighting, desiring, and taking. You're truncating the whole process. You are, my dad's a veterinarian, so I think in terms of, of what veterinarians do, you're spaying the process. <laughs> or neutering, depending on what, what gender it is. Hey, that's a, a visual that is an appropriate visual. You're cutting it off before it ever even has a chance to continue. Oh, yeah. 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 Just have this, it'll make you happier. Right. You know, if you just get another degree or if you pursue this career or whatever, then you'll find some happiness. Right. And so the focus is not on God to start with. Right. Right. Because Satan has created this environment of deception that causes us to think that other things will please us. Right. It's like a, I've kind of thought about it like a mirage. You know, you've seen the movies where the guy's out in the desert and he's just dying of thirst, you know, and he looks up and he sees this oasis, what appears to be an oasis, and he gets there and it turns out it's a mirage. That's kind of what, what Bill's talking about here with these things that Satan just kind of puts in front of you. If you get this, you'll be happy. If you get that. So that's what you become about. And, uh, yeah, he certainly put that out in front. There's also, uh, obviously, what took place there was kind of a reductionism. I'm going to take what God said as a clear commandment. And I'm going to reduce it to kind of, I'm going to trivialize it, essentially. I'm going to reduce it so much that it's now distorted. Well, he wants us to eat, doesn't he? <laughs> it's just food, right? It's just fruit. <laughs> I mean, he made me hungry. So there it is. And I'm, and I'm standing right here next to it. And, you know, it's not that big a deal. That's, that's what Satan does. While, or we're working with Satan now, now that we're fallen to partner with him to reduce while he's tempting, and before long we find, our, find us doing the same thing. That passage that I brought up a few weeks ago, 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, about how the world was characterized, how John characterizes the world. It was the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. You remember that? That's what's happening right here. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. <laughs> this is good. Here you go, Adam. That's all it is right there from the very beginning. Okay? So we can... Where is that? That's good. That's good. You know, I was going to make the point, too. You know, we talk about... We think about lust, and we think about man's eyes, and making a deal, you know using Job as our escort into this truth of making a deal with your eyes. Ladies can, can do this too, and, and men, men can be shoppers too, but we can find ourselves in a place of this perpetual, I gotta, like Bill's talking about, i got to go buy that. And really it begins, you know, this thought, of, hey, I'm going to go shopping today. Well, okay, I don't spend any money. Well, I'm just going to go look. What is that? Really, let's be honest, if you go look, you're going to go buy. And if you don't buy for some reason, you're at least targeting. <laughs> you're at least, yeah, in the Marine Corps, we had these laser targets where you could put a laser on a target and this heat-seeking missile could come hit them. <laughs> so essentially, you're going out lazing targets. Okay, next time, when, when I have some money, I'm going to come back and get that, boy. But if you don't go look, you don't recognize, you know, for me, I'm the worst for like, Knife catalogs or something like that, you know? How many knives do you need? Pocket knives. One. But I got one in my pocket. I'm sitting there looking at another catalog. Oh, look at that knife, man. That's cool. But if you don't look at it, you don't know you need it. But if you look at it, man, you're like, for long, I kind of need that. Look, it clips to your belt. My other one doesn't clip to my belt. So, But if you don't look, you won't know what you don't need. I'll tell you something else to think about in terms of how to truncate this process. We'll use the word truncate. Um, is accountability is another, another thing you can do. You know, if you don't look in the first place, but, you know, I wonder what would have happened if Eve, before she took, or even before she got to the point of delighting, she looked and she thought about it. You know, maybe Satan starts tempting her and she immediately turns to Adam. Adam, what do you think? I mean, there's this, this 
security in, account in, in each other that we don't have by ourselves. She went through this whole process with Satan without saying a word to Adam. You know, if she would have brought it up to Adam at some point, I just wonder what would have happened. And I've thought about, you know, what does this look like in our lives? It basically looks like the church being the place where we're truly authentic and genuine with, with each other. Unfortunately, we're most oftentimes most authentic and genuine with our workmates that may not even know the Lord. Think about it. Are our neighbors that may not even know the Lord because we feel complete. Well, well, they won't judge me. They won't condemn me. But in the church, you know, if I share this thought or share what I got on my mind, then they won't. Or that if it's a church friend, then they're going to beat me up over it. But we've got to appreciate the security in that. That when we're truly authentic with each other and we're truly genuine and we're sharing this, hey, man, Satan's tempted me with an apple. What do you think about it? We don't know there's an apple. Piece of fruit. Satan's tempted me with a piece of fruit. You're like, hey, well, let's talk about that. Remember what God said? And accountability is a cool thing. The uh, Ephesians passage where Paul writes to the church at Ephesus and he shares with them this full armor. You know, put on the full armor that you may withstand the, the wiles of Satan. Uh, one of those things was the shield of faith. The shield of faith was actually the kind of shield that was used. You may have seen this in a movie before where they had what was called a phalanx. You might know what a phalanx is? It's where they had these troops shoulder to shoulder. And they would have like the guys up front with the shields. They would have the guys behind them with the big spears. It was kind of the old-timey kind of fighting, you know. And, but the guys up front with those, those shields, it was a special kind of shield that really wasn't very functional unless the dude standing next to you had his shield up right next to you. And what you do is when the, when the enemy's shooting a bunch of arrows, you'd kneel down behind your shield and your shield would both protect you and protect the person to the right and the left of you. And his shield would protect you and the person to the right and left of him. But there's this picture of community. That putting on the full armor is not, a, not an individual kind of thing. You know, we view the, the lone warrior putting on his gear, going into combat. But what you, what you ought to view is the people of God coming together and putting on our armor together and dropping our shields together to withstand the fiery darts and arrows of Satan. It's a corporate thing that's why there's no room for anonymous church i don't know what that is that's like um people used to joke when i was in the military about military intelligence oh you know the paradox or you know um that's the one i can think of it's kind of silly but um anonymous church what is that that there's no such thing church is family and church we are our brother's keeper we're engaged with each other we're involved in each other's lives not in a meddling sort of way but in a we're on a journey together sort of way. Two are better than one. When one falls down, you can help another one up. That sort of picture is all over our Bible. Okay, accountability. All right, <clears throat> what else was added to the process of sin? We just brought up a few things here. She saw, she delighted, she desired, she took, she ate. What else was added there? She gave. I mean, she, she went through that whole process, and then she go, here you go, Adam. Boop. She puts it in his hand. And, I, you know, I was thinking about that. That is so like sin. Is that really a surprise? Sin loves company, doesn't it? I mean, you think about it. Whenever somebody falls in a certain area, the, the, the thing that really makes it bearable, digestible, is let me bring somebody with me. God has plenty to say about that, putting the millstone around somebody's neck and the, the impact of that, but I think... It has a very real impact on community when sin enters the camp. I mean, it really does. First uh, Corinthians chapter five, verse six. You can turn there. First Corinthians chapter five, verse six. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he's basically saying. You guys are boasting and arrogant when you got somebody involved in sexual sin right there in your church in a rebellious sort of way. Just kind of, okay, whatever, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do whatever I want to do. And you guys are actually even kind of boasting about it. And he's scolding them about that, and he's, challenged, he's charging them. Verse 5, he says, You are to deliver this man, this living in open rebellion, sin, to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And here's part of the rationale there. Ultimately... This is a picture of church discipline. 
And church discipline is partly about the person on the receiving end is you hope and pray that that person will repent and turn to Christ through that sting of isolation from the people of God, from the warm embrace of the isolation and and from losing that warm embrace of the people of God and feeling that sting of isolation. So it's part about that person, but it's also part about the camp. That, and he uses this example here. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse the old leaven out that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened for Christ. Or pure. Or this picture of leaven is a picture of sin. Leaven is used in different ways in our Bible. And Christ actually uses the picture of leaven in one parable as a picture of the kingdom of God. It's invisible. <laughs> It's not made up of big, fancy, worldly sort of things. It's kind of, it seems mundane and routine. The kingdom of God is made up of little discrete, ordinary moments. And what might seem like an ordinary conversation, the kingdom of God can happen in that moment. And that's like leaven. You know, you, you put it into a little lump that is going to be, leaven was yeast. It's what they used to make bread rise. He's basically saying you put a little bit in there and it's going to infiltrate into the whole lump of dough. And the kingdom of God is like that. But on the flip side of that, sin is like that too. That a little bit of leaven leavens the whole loaf. And um, the church is charged with doing all we can to eradicate that, that leaven because um, it's contagious. That was the point we're making there from Genesis chapter 3. Sin is contagious. Here you go, Adam. Have a bite. Okay, it has a very real impact. Now, what, what adjective did the woman use to describe what she saw when she looked at the tree? What adjective? Not verb. I'm going to test your English knowledge, too. Some of y'all are going, what's an adjective? Okay, what is it? I don't want to miss this. What is it? Good. She saw that tree and she said, hmm, that tree is good for food. Where have you seen the use of the word good so far in our study of Genesis? All over the first chapter. All but one day, everything he made, he said, he looked at it and said, mm, now that's good. So the contrast here is that now woman is trying to determine what's good. And the reality is that man is right, man is in the right place with God whenever we are, whenever he determines what is good. And our definition of good falls within, is a subset of what he says is good. When we start trying to determine what's good on our own, that's when things go awry. And that's when things get bad. What are you laughing at? You laughing at that word? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Sin involves your good trumping his good. We take ownership of his identification of good and put our desires above him. It happens all the time. That's kind of the process and picture of sin. And verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Okay, their eyes were opened to know good and evil. What good had they known before this? Let's go ahead and identify it. What good had they known? What are some of the goods? Fellowship with God being the best. Yeah, that walking in the cool of the day relationship. Though they did have to work. Oh, yeah. Satan was, or uh, not Satan, uh, Adam. Adam was put there to tend to the garden, to work and to keep. So work was part of it. But it was a good, it was a different, it wasn't work as we know. Because work as we know is one step forward, two steps back as a result of what happened here this day. Work as he knew it would have been, do you all know what entropy is? Some of y'all know because I've talked about this before. You know what entropy is? Entropy is what happens to your desk after you straighten it, like a month later, where you look at it and go, what happened? Entropy is when things go from a higher state of order to a lower state of order. We are living in a current state, constant state of decay. Our bodies are going through entropy. Hey, man, five years ago, I was in better shape than I am right now. <laughs> Left to its own device, it's just going to get worse. That's what, that's, that was a consequence. That was when the earth was cursed. That's the consequence of sin. So work in that environment is, hey, man, one step forward, two steps back. 
So the work for them was especially, especially rewarding. Most of their work was harvest. Let me just take this big, ample, you know, fruit off this tree, this tree that's just overflowing with abundance. So work was different, but I know what you meant. Okay, what, what were the other goods? Hold on. Let's, let's hit these other goods, and I'll come back to you. The garden. They were enjoying the garden. It was, yeah, it's incredible. I mean, just you can imagine. You can imagine what, what that was like. Oh, at that point there was. There was no death. So the garden was not fertilized with decay. You know, you think about it. Gardens as we know it, you fertilize with actually dying organic substance. Not this garden. <laughs> now, that's just weird. How did they grow? Well, I don't know. They just, there was no death at that point. Yet. Yet. Halima, what was your question? What that that like he he may not even known where she got the fruit. Well, it depends on if he was listening to God. God told him clearly that you are not to eat of it because in the day that you eat of it, you'll die. Yeah. Uh huh. Oh, that he was just joining her? Yeah. So they would both, misery, love, con- well. I don't know. Let me think about that. I, I don't want to comment on that. Let me, I know. Let me, let, me, let me process that some. Well, I'm not answering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I haven't read anything like that before. That's um that's pretty creative and I, you know I I don't want to dismiss something until I have a chance to 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 chew on it some but or study it some but I don't have a response for you. That's good. I guess it's a good question. I don't know. I'll think on it. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that though. Okay, their eyes are open to know good and evil. And we just kind of got a sampling of some of the good that they knew up to this point. They knew the garden. They knew walking in the cool of the day relationship. They knew the goodness of marriage. Some people think this was on day seven. I, I, I don't know. I mean, it'd be hard to... It seemed like they would have known some goodness over a period of time. There, that They would have enjoyed some sort of relationship. But Yeah. There's no fear of the Lord at that point. Yeah. Or it doesn't seem to be. What evil do they know now? Let's, let's go ahead. And, it's obvious, but let's go ahead and acknowledge it. What evil do they know? Their own. Yeah, their own way and exactly what they just did. So yes, now their eyes are open and they know both good and evil. And this brings shame. And as a result of that shame... There's what I would call recognized nakedness. Because up to this point, they were totally naked. But now they're recognizing it, going, hey, we don't have any clothes on. And guilt. Okay, in, in chapter 2 of Genesis, look at the contrast here. Because I want you to see that the difference between these two verses is one thing. Genesis 2.25 says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Okay, contrast that with Genesis 3, 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The difference in there is one thing, and what is it? Sin. Sin is the difference between nakedness and just freedom, and then recognized nakedness and guilt. There's a passage I'll share with you, Deuteronomy chapter 28. There's, there's lots of pictures of nakedness in the Bible. 
of being a place of um, shame and being the result, a recognized nakedness being the result of sin. Deuteronomy chapter 28. Verse 48. I'll start with verse 47. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance... Well, it's kind of mid-sentence. I'll start with verse 45 and read through 48. All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep His commandments and His statutes that He commanded you. They shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and lacking everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. The consequences of sin is this recognized nakedness and shame. Ezekiel chapter 16 is one more passage I want to look at. This is a picture of Israel when they had been essentially whoring with the world. And um, they went into exile in Babylon. And this is what God is saying He's going to do. Basically, He's going to restore them, but He wants them to see their condition. This is really our story. You know that passage I just read to you? Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10? That's all this is right here. It's the Old Testament version. It's really a pretty raw version. This is probably the most raw, graphic chapter in the entire Bible. It'll make you blush. But really, it's describing our condition and our, our shame and our nakedness. Listen, I'm not going to read the whole thing. I just want to read the first eight verses. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. He's, Jerusalem is shorthand for Israel. And say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you. But you were cast out into the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed you by and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. That's Zechariah chapter 3 reaching out and grabbing the brand. Essentially, what he's just described there is the dirty clothes of Joshua, the iniquity of Joshua. Really, what that is is Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3, that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. He's giving graphic illustration to that. And he says, live. I said to you, in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. God's in the business of clothing naked, guilty, shameful, dirty people. Man, what his his redemptive character is all over this Bible. That's the gospel again, right there again. What happens to fig leaves after they've been picked? I'm going to quiz you all on Scott's sermon from a couple weeks ago. They shrink and get kind of brittle and hmm, not a very good loincloth, I bet. They shrivel up, they get brittle. And this is a picture of man's pitiful attempt at covering his guilt. (laughs) You can't do it. But the gospel is illustrated here. How do you see the gospel in what unfolds? Um, Of course, I have to kind of fast forward to let you know you may know this. Here they, they're sewing fig leaves together and they're making themselves loincloths. God later on kills an animal and takes the skins and makes clothing for them out of the skins. Where, where do you see the gospel in that? Say, so, okay, something's got to die. Okay, and what'd you say, Steve? Okay, all right. What else? What other images do you see? Say that again. Yeah, what, what, what he's offering is going to be long-term protection. And ultimately, it's just a type of the real protection to come, which is what? 
What, what, protect, what covers us now? The blood of Jesus. Yeah. But really, I think what I'm seeing here is this contrast between man's attempt at covering his own guilt and God's attempt at cover and God's accomplishing covering man's guilt with the skins and at the cost and death of an innocent. <laughs> that critter, whatever it was, warthog, who knows what it was? You know, who cares? It was just some critter that had fur. What did he do? He didn't eat any fruit. But God takes an innocent. It's a picture of substitutionary atonement. It's a picture of God taking an innocent, whoosh, cutting his throat, taking the skins and saying, okay, I'm going to cover the guilty with the blood of the innocent. Ooh, man, the gospel. When you see it show up, mm, it's pretty, isn't it? We're going to pick up in verse 8, Wednesday after next. Next Wednesday... Uh, actually, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, the, the staff, we're going to be going to Seattle for um, a conference in Seattle. So we're going to leave early in the morning on Monday. And Steve is going to have a time of prayer and a uh, kind of a, a preparatory informational session for, for Kazakhstan journeys that are coming up. If Lord is, you feel like the Lord has really been communicating with you about going, um, you definitely need to be here. But really, you should all be here anyway. When God's people gather to pray for Jake and Stephanie, to pray for the work in Kazakhstan, this is not our, our sole burden. You know, hopefully, hopefully, as the people of God, we're burdened for the world. But we're being very intentional about praying for and walking with the ministry that's in Kazakhstan right now. So I encourage you to be here next week um, for that time with Steve. Steve spent how many years in Kazakhstan, Steve? Two? And, of course, he's got a tremendous investment there with a daughter, son-in-law, and two grandbabies. So um, Steve will share with you all next Wednesday night. We've already got some teams that are forming and readying to go. So I heard from somebody tonight that they actually ordered their luggage. That's good. I like it. I like it. Morris. They let her over there. Yeah, we entertain ourselves and we kind of fabricate an experience of mama look good in those shoes once I get them. I bet those things are going to look good with my pants. I don't think that way. I'm just, I hear ladies. <laughs> I'm not really into shoes that much. I kind of had three or four pair, you know. For me, it's pocket knives. Man, I'm going to look good cleaning my fingernails with that pocket knife. <laughs> Uh, cutting that piece of string, <laughs> be fashionable. Whew. All right, let me pray. Lord, we appreciate our time together tonight, and um, while we enjoy each other and uh, can laugh and just kind of um, appreciate each other, I, I pray tonight that we can appreciate the gravity of sin. Appreciate that uh, what we're reading about right now, what we're studying about right now was um, was a grave time when sin entered this world. Um, Lord, we are grateful and thankful that you are in the business of clothing the guilty. And um, we are surprised by that grace and that mercy. We are grateful for the one that died so that we might be clothed and for the one that bled and uh, submitted to wood and nails and spit and insults. Lord, I pray that that Jesus and that sacrifice and that cross and that empty tomb is what fuels us for true worship every day. I pray that it will fuel shepherds that will pick up uh, Bibles between Sundays and will love and minister to wife and children. And for those families without a, um, a male shepherd uh, and a functional 
Shepherd and mom, I just pray for just a deep burden and a special equipment there, unique equipment for moms that are leading out their families by themselves. Lord, we love you so much. We are so thankful for the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives, for the, the um, counsel and the leadership and the encouragement that he gives us, that you give us through him. We're so thankful for community, for the people of God that we walk with and that we serve next to, shield to shield. Lord, we just appreciate your um, rebuke of the accuser. We so wonder at grace. Uh, we count Christ sufficient. We enjoy him together tonight. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks, y'all.